feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible of your own and uh, read it. We are uh, working our way through John chapter uh, 15. If this is your first time here at Church on Mill, our uh, habit is very simple. We uh, simply start at the beginning of a book in the Bible and work our way through it thought by thought. We do that because uh, we believe that the Bible is not only that God spoke, that's true, it's also that God is speaking. And the way we hear from God today as we go to his word and listen as he teaches us. So we're just working our way through this book together each week, uh, moving a little bit further along. Today we'll finish out chapter 15. That was God calling, did you hear? Isn't that great? This is amazing. Um, Expectations are curious things, aren't they? They are um, often unspoken, sometimes unconscious, but always powerful. Expectations not only determine how we think about something, but in many ways they shape our very experience of that thing. They're extraordinarily powerful. In some sense, it's probably not an overstatement for us to even say expectations are everything. Think of that in relationship to a marriage. No one has ever gotten married expecting their spouse to turn out to be a loser. Everyone says yes that gets married because they have an expectation that life will be better with that husband or wife than it was without them. But often, that first year or so of marriage is difficult for couples because you take two people with their own sets of expectations and wed them, and what happens? Expectations collide. And there is a mess that ensues. Taking two separate people, even two people who really love each other, and putting them in such a way that the things that were once cute can quickly become annoying, there's going to be conflict. If newlyweds presume ease when they get married, then they will be very disappointed. And so couples must learn as they are married to adjust their expectations if they will remain married. Now, if that's true of a husband and a wife, then how much more true is that for a Christian? Brother, sister, I wonder this morning, what did you expect when you said yes to Jesus? Did you think life would become easier? Or were you aware of the fact that in some way life would become more difficult. Our text this morning is designed by God to help us understand what we ought to expect as Christians living in the world in which we live. Up to this point in this section of the Gospel of John, we have been hearing from Jesus instructing us on what life is like in relationship between Jesus and his followers. But now at this point in this farewell discourse, this speech from Jesus to his disciples on the night before his arrest, 
He's preparing them not for their relationship with God and each other, but for their relationship with the world, for their relationship with non-Christians. And he's going to do so from this point on through the rest of chapter 16. And it turns out that expectations are vitally important when we come to this issue. So I'll read uh, starting in verse 18 of John chapter 15. It says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. It's an encouraging way to start the paragraph. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you in the father, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's not a reference to U of A. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The assumption Jesus makes about how his followers will be treated by the world is that opposition will be normal. Christian, it's not unusual or infrequent or surprising or shocking or outlandish or strange that you would be looked at weird and talked to harshly because of your faith. Jesus says it's typical. He says that Christians, in fact, will experience persecution from the world just like Jesus did. That is the main argument of this text. Christians expect that there will be difficulty. Expect there will be persecution. Now, in light of this very important passage, I want to try this morning to speak briefly to three different groups of people, likely uh, who are all here this morning. The first group I'd love to speak to and speak the longest to are Christians who are experiencing persecution, or perhaps who have experienced it in the past and have struggled to know what to think about what you've experienced. We might call that group the persecuted. Group two I'd love to speak to this morning are Christians who have not in the past and who are not at present experiencing persecution. I couldn't find a word for you, so I made one up. It's called the persecuted list. I don't know why that's not a word. It should be. Group three... I'd like to speak to just briefly today, our unbelievers. You are what might be called potential persecutors. Perhaps you've never thought of yourself like that. So we'll speak today to the persecuted, the persecuted less, 
and potential persecuted, potential persecuted, ers. I guess I'm inventing more words than I planned on. Let's start with that first group and spend the longest here together. Those who have been or are being persecuted. Obviously, in a passage like this, the first thing we've got to do is just define what persecuted means. Certainly, when I hear that word, perhaps I'm like you, the first thing I think of are the kinds of things you read or see on the TV or hear people from other cultures talk about. Those things that happen far, far away, but not here. But friend... There are, in fact, people here from all over the world. And the fact is that if you're from certain Middle Eastern countries, or if you're from Iran, or if you're from parts of China, and you say yes to Jesus, and in saying yes to Jesus, you make the decision to someday go back to your homeland, in part, to help spread the gospel there then understand you are, in fact, going to experience persecution, perhaps even physical persecution. Your decision to move back to your homeland in order to share your faith is the very best way for your countrymen and women to know Jesus Christ. It might be that God would send some American missionaries to serve in one of those countries but they will never be as effective as natives. And so the way the gospel will spread among these most unreached people left on planet Earth are by people like you moving back home in order to persuade people to come to know Christ. But in doing so, be aware that certainly you will meet social and familial and financial persecution but you might also experience beatings, jail, and even death. We as a church family ought to be thankful for the ways in which your willingness to suffer even physically for Christ persuades us to be willing to suffer in lesser ways for the cause of Christ. Every time I sit down with a visiting scholar from China who's part of the Communist Party, and they're considering the claims of Christ, and they're recognizing, I have already gave my allegiance to the Communist Party, which means I am a pledged atheist, that to go home will be costly, and they do it anyway. I am reminded of how weak in many ways my faith is. Or the times in which I've sat down with someone from Saudi Arabia who's grown up Muslim and has now heard the story of the gospel in a different way and is considering coming to Christ, considering going back home. I'm challenged in my own faith. Friends, these are unique opportunities that the Lord gives us here at Church on Mill because of where our facilities are located. We are blessed to have people here who come 
to Christ and in fact realize and recognize that they may very well face the great sacrifice of even their lives. May we learn from these among us who teach us so well the sacrifice that Jesus is worth. Here in America, though, we're not presently experiencing physical persecution. But that does not mean we are without hardship for our faith. Today, persecution in America comes in different forms. Try to think through this week the sequence of events that usually happens for someone when they're facing some kind of sacrifice or hardship for your faith. Usually, if you think of this on a micro level, so just an individual, it starts something like this. You're in a conversation with somebody who's not a believer, and they learn you're our believer. And their responses to you begin with collaboration. And what I mean by that is not they go get 10 people and they all come gang up on you. That might happen, but even a singular conversation between two people, very often the non-Christian will be speaking to you from a position of cultural authority. And so they will communicate with you in such a way that it is designed to say, everyone else is against you. You're out all on your own. There's a sense of collaboration in talking to Christians about their faith and how little and few Christians there are. That quickly moves from collaboration to what we might call condescension. If you've had a conversation with somebody who's not a believer, and very quickly that conversation turns on such a dime to which you are being condescendingly spoken to. Perhaps that's about what you believe about the Scriptures or about Jesus coming back from the dead or about miracles in general or about creation. We could go on and on and on about the list of opportunities to be told how stupid, uneducated, foolish, ignorant, hateful, we in fact are. And as that condescension continues, it will continue to the point of coercion. That coercion is designed to persuade you, Christian, that you must, in fact, change your belief in Christ. Give Him up, or you will be left behind. This is the form in which persecution takes place. Now, none of those things will likely involve physical hostility. But we would serve each other better if we acknowledged that there is some sense in which those conversations can bring about hardship. We would better help each other if we acknowledge even this to the degree of calling it persecution. Last week in Ohio, two Christian parents lost custody of their underage high schooler. Not because they were neglecting her or abusing her, 
but because this child who's decided that she is, in fact, a boy trapped in a girl's body, and she wants to get sex reassignment surgery, and her parents wouldn't do it. This case ended up in court for over a year, in which when the decision finally came down, the two parents who are Christians lost custody of their own child. Did you know that? That happened in the last seven days in America. That child's custody was transferred to a different family member who had agreed to allow this underage kid to go through a life-altering, physically changing, what will eventually be psychologically damaging sex reassignment surgery. These parents said, not, my child is fine, just ignore this. These parents were saying, my child's psychological trauma, emotional hardship, physical feelings, emotionally suicidal tendencies are real. But I don't agree that the best way to help her is to allow her to pretend she can become a man, but to care for her in other ways. But because that doesn't fit the larger cultural agenda, they lost their own child. It's astonishing. That is persecution. Every middle schooler or high schooler or college student in the room who hasn't shirked away from your faith at school has experienced Moments of harsh looks and belittling and social ostracization, certainly from peers and probably from faculty. That's persecution. Every Christian in the room that has extended family that are not believers, and you don't just talk about weather and sports, but you talk about faith in loving ways, you have very likely experienced cold shoulders, and estranged relationships. That's persecution. If you have a friend who is uh, same-sex attracted and gets engaged and is planning to wed, and you take him or her out to lunch and say, I love you, and because I love you, I'm begging you, don't marry this person. This isn't God's design. She can't fix your need for joy. You will be branded, no matter how gentle, sincerely loving you are. You will be branded a bigot and thought of as somebody who owns slaves, regardless of how you go about that conversation. That's persecution. Friends, none of those things are physical, but they are real nonetheless. So how is it that we as Christians can face opposition to our faith? A couple of suggestions based on this passage that would inform us as we try to live 
winsomely for Christ in a culture that's opposed to him. Number one, we are to remain patient and faithful and loving. We're never to return a harsh word with harsh words in kind. Jesus says the very nature of our personal, interpersonal relationships is that if we are struck on one cheek, we are to turn the other. How many times when you've been met with opposition has that been your response? We are to remain patient and faithful and loving. This entire section of John is a lengthy speech given by Jesus on the night that he was to be arrested. And Jesus knew that within 24 hours of him giving this speech, he would watch as these disciples ran in fear because he would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be killed. And he wanted them to not live the rest of their lives in fear. See, Jesus was well aware that he would not remain dead, that he would come back to life, he would be resurrected, and that resurrection would decisively show the power and victory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would commission these disciples to take the gospel around the world. And he knew that nearly all of them would give up their own lives for their faith. And so, in a sense, he's preparing them for what they didn't yet understand would come. He's preparing them in order that they would remain patient and faithful and loving. Later, the Apostle Paul would become one of them, and he would suffer greatly for his faith. This was a man who multiple times was beaten to the very edge of death. This was a man who had rocks pummeled at his body to the point that the people throwing the rocks thought he was dead and just left him. This was a man who looked at all of those things and in the book of Corinthians called them light, momentary affliction. How is that possible? It's possible because Paul, through the Spirit, had developed a particular way of thinking about persecution. We must learn to think rightly about why we are persecuted if we would endure when it comes. John chapter 15, verse 18 says, If, in this sense, meaning in this case, meaning since. If, if the world, or since the world, hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, I'm probably the least intelligent person in the room. But even I can understand that if being a Christian means we're following Christ, and if Christ experienced persecution, doesn't it naturally correlate that we too, as his followers, would experience the same. Now, what does this word world mean in verse 18? The word world does not mean, in this case, that object upon which we are all existing. It doesn't mean the physical world. 
In John, when John uses the word world, it most often is referring to what we might call the fallen order of the physical world. It is that state in which all of us are born into. It is that there is a system in this physical world that is fallen and that is against the things of God. It is those aspects of culture that hate our new character, our new Lord, our new priorities, our new peace, our new joy, and wants to stand in opposition against them. Tolerance is all the rage today, but there is nothing more intolerant than tolerance. It is a worldview that is not able to stand even on its own, but it is incredibly powerful. Why is the world against Christ? Well, John chapter 15 gives us at least four reasons. Number one, it says that the world hates Jesus. That's what verse 18 and verse 20 say. The world hates Jesus. When you experience, brother or sister, some difficulty for your faith, don't allow yourself to get a puffed up big head about how important you are. Because at the end of the day, when you experience persecution, you are experiencing persecution because Jesus experienced persecution. You are something more like a glass through which the person persecuting you is actually persecuting Jesus. Number two, why does the world persecute believers? Well, it persecutes believers because we're not of the world. It's not that we were never of the world. There's no superiority here. But we are no longer of the world. Those of you who like uh, science fiction movies, particularly science fiction movies about aliens, let me remind you of the way every single one of these movies goes. Aliens come to or near Earth. A few weirdos think this is cool and begin to study them and want to meet them. Everybody else is scared to death. Conflict develops between the few weirdos and everybody else. And the aliens leave. End of genre. This is it. Now, next time one of these movies comes out that's going to do the exact same thing, take your $10 and give it in the offering. Because that is what happens in all of these stories. Now, why does that happen? Why is that the story of every alien movie? Because... Aliens are not of this world. And we're afraid of what is not of this world. Christians, you are no longer of this world. So you might as well have six heads, 12 eyes, nine arms, and four legs. You are going to be looked at as an absolute freak. And many will react to you harshly because they're afraid. Because you're not of this world. 
A third reason for this persecution is that the world doesn't know or love God. That's what verse 21 and verse 25 say. Friends, all of us are born not neutral morally, not indifferent to God. We're born with an innate hostility towards Him. And so we don't know God in and of ourselves, in our own strength, regardless of to whom we were born. JJ and Sophie, who just stood up here, have both have incredibly strong, godly parents. But JJ and Sophie are not morally cute and cuddly. They are guilty sinners. They are already against God. No one has to teach JJ or Sophie to be selfish. As soon as they can, they will be brilliant in their opposition to their parents and thereby brilliant in their opposition against God. Friends, all of us are that way. Why? Because we're of the world. Because we're all born in Adam. Because we're morally guilty. And so the world persecutes Christians because the world doesn't know God. And finally, and perhaps maybe surprisingly to many of us, a fourth reason there is persecution, why this happens, is what verse 24 and 25 say. These verses show us that the world willfully refuses to believe. Friends, there is not a person that is morally neutral. And every person who hears the gospel or sees the works of God and responds with rejection has more and more guilt and condemnation heaped upon them. And what is the reaction to that? What's well, a very natural one? It is increased hostility towards those who follow God. And so there is a moral sense in which rejection of God is shown by persecution of Christians. It is simply not true that people are neutral about Christ. You're either for Him or you are against Him. And so, of course, those who are for Him would meet opposition. In verse 25, there's a section of the verse in quotations. Those quotations are a reference very likely to Psalm 69, verse 4. This is where David, King David, was meeting great numbers of enemies. And he looked out at these enemies, and he's praying to God, and he says, I am being hated without cause. Meaning, I didn't do anything to have all these people be against me. David, in a very small way, showed us what was true of Jesus in a full way. That Jesus is hated without cause. Jesus is the most loving, perfect, gracious, honest, powerful person who's ever lived. And what did that get him? He was murdered. 
And so what was true in a little way that was true completely of Jesus will also be true in little ways about us. We are to be not hated because of our sin or because of the way in which we harshly or meanly speak of other people. I always found it odd that the Scriptures tell us, Christians, that we are not to judge the world. Why would we expect people without Christ to act like they have Christ? But we're rather to judge each other in the church. We do the exact opposite. And that is so childish. We are to be watching each other's behavior that we might grow up in Christ and looking with compassion upon the world, sharing Christ with them. The world's problems are not their sins, but rather their sin. They're in bondage, fallen, and need a Savior. And so we should suffer never because we have judged the world and treated them meanly, but because the world has rejected Christ. So if this is true, if these reasons and more exist for why we are persecuted, then how should we respond? Well, Christians, we are to continue to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Considering all these reasons we experience hardship, then it's all the more important that we be committed to sharing the gospel. Verse 26 and 27 say, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds to you from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Now this text most clearly refers to the apostles, the, the, that group of 11 disciples who heard Jesus speaking, who received from him this pre-commissioning to speak the gospel and to write it out. And this is a tremendous moment in which we see Jesus telling them, here's what's going to happen, and now we have the joy of being long removed from them, and yet knowing Jesus was telling the truth. Now, how do you know? Well, you're holding Matthew through Revelation. And this, in fact, shows us that what Jesus said would happen, happened. Because Matthew through Revelation was written by the disciple, the apostles or their friends. And this is the witness that has been given that people would come to know Christ, and it cost them their lives. Praise God they stayed true to Him, because that's why we know Christ. May it be said of us that in a secondary way this text is true of us, that we too have shown Christ to be worth it. Brothers and sisters, we show Jesus to be wonderful, not when we are at ease, when we have good jobs like everyone else, we have good full families like everybody else, we have anything we want money can buy, we have health, wealth, and ease. That doesn't put Christ on display. We show Jesus to be supreme 
by remaining true to Him when we are suffering because of Him. It is hardship for Christ that displays Christ most clearly. And it is Christ the world the most needs. In conclusion to this first group of people, let me try to summarize what the passage says as a whole. Although we will experience persecution from the world just like Jesus did, it is to that world that we bear witness with the Holy Spirit. May we do it well because the world needs Jesus. A second group of people to speak to this morning, the persecuted less. So Christians who are here who have not and are not experiencing persecution. Some here today claim Christ, but have never suffered for Christ. Well, why? Well, maybe you're a fifth grader, and it just hasn't happened yet. That's possible. Maybe you're in college, and you were homeschooled, and your parents raised you in this little Christian bubble, and now you're doing some kind of bizarre homeschooled college thing. It's possible that you haven't experienced persecution yet. Maybe you're independently wealthy, so you don't work, and you order everything on Amazon, and you never leave your house. And the Christians, the the family you have are Christians, and the friends you have are Christians. And so the only people you know are like three or four people. And the only friends you have that might not be Christians are very nice to you because they want your dough, (laughs) then maybe it's theoretically possible that you have not experienced persecution yet. But what is far more likely is that you fall into one of two buckets. It's far more likely that you are claiming Christ but have not been living boldly for Christ. Maybe you are claiming Christ, but when opposition shows its possible rearing of its head, then your habit is to shirk in shame and fear. Friends, I don't want to pound you over the Bible if that's, pound you over the head with the Bible today. I don't think that's what you need. Peter did that very thing, and he loved Jesus a lot. But Jesus later came and restored him. May the Word of God this morning restore you. Fear is natural. Fear is understandable. And friend, what you need is not to fixate on your fear that you would not be fearful anymore but rather fixate on God. Because the only thing that trumps the fear of people is the right fear of God. God is worth living for. He is worth suffering for. He is worth even losing friends, family, finances, health, even your life. So fix your eyes on Him, and the Spirit will strengthen you that you might say next time you're afraid, God, give me strength that I might lovingly say, 
No, I will continue to stand with Jesus. But perhaps there's this other bucket. Maybe there's one or two people that would fall in this category. Perhaps you are not experiencing hardship from the world because you, are, in fact, still are of the world. Maybe you've not suffered for Christ because you don't belong to Christ. And friend, if you analyze your life and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you have never, ever experienced anything difficult or uncomfortable because of Jesus, then you probably are not of Jesus. And the thing you most need today is to come to Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is big enough, it's powerful enough, it's loving enough, it's gracious enough to even save people who thought they were saved. And so if you, in fact, are deceived, then step out of that deception and enjoy today the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all you've been doing is pretending. You know when you go to a restaurant, a nice one, and they bring out that tray of desserts and they cost like 30 bucks for a little brownie. But what, what's being held on that tray, if you were to grab that one and say, I want that, you would be really disappointed because it's plastic. That's what you've been doing with your Christianity. You've been gnawing on a piece of plastic. Of course it doesn't satisfy. Get the real thing today. Come to Christ. Now, finally, very quickly, this final group of people to unbelievers who are here today, those who in the future could become persecutors, please understand our intent, both as a congregation, as a church family, and as individuals, is to invite you to know Christ, the greatest news there could ever be. That greatest news involves some bad news. You don't have God. You are a sinner. You are broken and busted. But we say that only to say this. There is a God that can restore you to wholeness, that can give you life and joy and peace, the promise of God forever. And so we do not stand against you, but for you. We share Christ We stand against things that are sinful, not because we're mean and better or some sense morally superior. We stand with Christ because we believe that loving Jesus, being loved by Jesus, is in fact the most wonderful way there is to live. So we're not against you. We're for you. And whatever you might bring about against us, we will, in fact, by God's grace, remain with Jesus. And the history of the church has shown the more difficult the persecution, the more powerful the witness for the gospel. We invite you to come to Christ, not because we're better, but because we have experienced firsthand Jesus is better than everything else. So come to Christ today. Don't remain without Him. His arms are open. 
If you'll repent and believe, you can have him too. Brothers and sisters, this is not an easy text, but it is a hopeful, helpful text. Let's focus our energies together, Church on Mill, on shining a bright light for Jesus and in shining it together. God in His grace has put us in a place in which there are many who don't yet know Jesus Christ. We will not shine for Him well if we live in fear. We will shine for Him well if we lovingly, tenaciously, consistently say gospel truth. May we do that together. And may we recognize that there are within us the seeds of the temptation to walk away from Christ. And so we need each other that we might continue to listen to Jesus, remain consistent with the Helper, and bear witness for Christ. Jesus is worth everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you tell us not only what we want to hear, but what we in fact need to hear. That you have told us in this text what we need. Certainly, as I prepared and even gave this morning, I was reminded of times in which I have been ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps there's other brothers and sisters here like me today. So, Father, I pray on behalf of all of us, would you please, Lord, forgive us for when we have been ashamed of the gospel, when we have been afraid of persecution. Please strengthen us now as you have forgiven us. And may we live faithfully for you this week pray also for non-Christians here that they would not stay without you, but would come to you even now as I pray. In Jesus' name.